everyone, welcome to Crop 28, talking food and ag at COP28. My name is Jesse, I'm the host and creator of this podcast. As the title indicates, this is a podcast about COP28, which is a United Nations climate change conference that's happening in Dubai, United Arab Emirates in a couple weeks. And today's episode should really just be a little bit of an introduction about me, about what COP is, what some of the history behind it, why this year's COP is pretty controversial. And then I'll get into the main subject, food and ag at COP28, also some of the history of food and agriculture negotiations throughout the years uh, and what I'm going to be focusing on specifically in this year's COP. And also I'll talk a little bit about my hopes for this podcast going forward. So I hope uh, this will be just an introduction that will give you some background on the subject. No, no prior knowledge is required. And hopefully this podcast in general will be enjoyable and informative. So thank you so much. For listening i really appreciate it and i hope you enjoy a little bit of background about me my name is jesse terry i am a junior at McAllister college in saint paul minnesota studying political science and international studies with a concentration in food and agriculture i'm also a research intern at the chicago council on global affairs and their center on global food and agriculture and of course i should have probably said this earlier but i'm going to be luckily i'm lucky enough to be attending cop this year for the first week as part of my school's delegation I've really been getting into agriculture and food issues over the past couple years. Uh, I think the subject is really a nice mix of other things that are really important and interesting to me. Interesting to me, obviously, climate and sustainability as it relates to this podcast, um, but also ensuring farmers' livelihoods, labor rights, food security, access to healthy food. I've had some formative experiences, like volunteering um, at different anti-hunger and hunger relief organizations that are taking creative approaches, volunteering at some farms. An internship at the Minnesota Senate was a great experience. I actually got to write my own bill related to sustainable agriculture. Um, And over the past few years, I've been pretty involved on campus with an organization called the Sunrise Movement, which is a youth movement against climate change. So thinking about sustainability and climate as it relates to agriculture is really important to me. But that's enough about me. Let's get into COP and the history. Again, thank you so much for listening. Before I get into a little bit about COP and the history, I want to say in general for this whole section, I'm also still learning about some of this stuff, so I'm going to try to include some of the sources I found really helpful in the show notes. There are a lot of people doing great work on the subject, so I will include some of the sources that I found most helpful in learning about some of this history and important issues. But let's get into a little bit of the history of COP. So in 1992 in Rio, there was something called the Earth Summit, which established the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, or UNFCCC, and that entered into force in 1994. So the UNFCCC was an agreement between countries to take steps to start mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. It also recognized that different countries have different responsibilities based on how much they emit and how much they've emitted historically. And there was also some language about developed countries taking steps to assist uh, low-income or developing countries in this, uh, in these mitigation steps. And of course, for this podcast, the, the UNFCCC also established that these countries should meet every year to update agreements and check in on progress, which of course is COP. Uh, and COP actually stands for Conference of the Parties. Uh, and that relates to those different countries. Some historical COPs that have been really important were 
One was Kyoto in 1997, or COP3. So that really was a step where countries were starting to make some firmer agreements. And there was actually a legally binding agreement for 37 countries in the EU about taking steps to reduce emissions and address climate change. It also, at COP3 in Kyoto, there was established a carbon market framework. Um, so that was, that was kind of a two-part thing with joint implementation, which was basically trading carbon credits. Um, and then there was also something called the Clean Development Mechanism, which, again, was a step for um, developing countries and the private sector make, to make investments in low-income and developing countries. However, unfortunately, the Kyoto um, Agreement expired in 2013, so some of those programs are no longer going on. And actually, the U.S. didn't sign on, which is a big blow because often these requirements, there's no hard implementation. So really need the big countries to sign on. But the U.S. did not sign on to that agreement. Another big COP moment was Copenhagen in 2009, where over 100 country leaders showed up, uh, but they were unable to reach an agreement. It was a big, big deal that the negotiations failed that year. Um, they did reach some agreement on a goal that um, richer countries would invest by 2020, they would reach a time where they would be investing $100 billion a year for developing countries in addressing climate change. But uh, 2020 has come and gone, and that still they still haven't reached that threshold. But overall, that was a step forward. Overall, Copenhagen was um, a pretty big uh, bad look, which relates to what many people probably, the COP that is most well-known is Paris in 2015, or COP21, which kind of after that big uh, failure in 2009 in Copenhagen, there was the landmark Paris Agreement, which people may have heard of, the Paris Climate Accords, which is a le legally binding treaty with, with the goal of keeping the global temperature rise below uh, two degrees. That's uh, Celsius, and the, that's measured uh, against the pre-industrial era. So to keep global temp temperature rise below two degrees and ideally below 1.5 degrees. So every country made their own commitments um, trying to trying to keep these numbers below that. So that was kind of using some peer pressure. Uh, and then the other thing that came out of Paris was, or one of many other things, was the global stock take, which actually the first global stock take is happening this year in 2023, which is going to be a time when uh, countries sit down and scientists and see what progress is being made, what really still needs to be needs to happen. Last year's COP, COP27, was held in Egypt. It was called the Implementation COP, really trying to put some money and programs behind some of the previous agreements and declarations that had made it, been made at previous COPs, but it was pretty disappointing. A big goal had been to get the language of phasing out fossil fuel in the final agreement, but it got changed to phase down instead, which is much less strong language. One big win of COP27 was the creation of the Loss and Damages Fund, which is uh, a fund that's going to be created for countries that are most vulnerable and being most affected by climate change today. I know I kind of jumped right into the history there, but I also wanted to talk a little bit more about how the conferences themselves function, uh, who is there, and what's what's going on. So really, there's, there's delegates from almost 200 countries. Almost every country uh, sends a team to, this, to these COPs, uh, and there's a in terms of total attendance, that can be upwards of 20 or 30,000 people. So that's made up of these country delegates, delegates, scientists, activists, NGOs, um, and more and more recently, industry people from the different um, big industries that may or may not be emitting. Um, and while there's these big panels and negotiations, there's also hundreds of different side meetings uh, where 
people present new research, new strategies for addressing climate change, um, and also talk about how climate intersects with different areas that people may have not thought of before. Um, a big thing for NGOs and smaller countries is gaining attention in the media. There's a big media presence at each of these COPs, and it's also really a time for, for activists and NGOs to make allies and network. Governments, of course, are using this time to make announcements about their progress on climate. Um, and then there's a lot of closed door negotiations that are going on all the time that uh, people have less, less access to. And then, like I mentioned about people from industry being there, there's a lot of corporate interests that are involved, involved. So either making presentations about how their company is addressing climate change or more on the tech side, um, corporate sorry, tech companies that are making presentations about their new products or new innovations that will help solve climate change. And then there's a big, the big negotiations uh, lead up to a declaration at the end of each COP. Uh, this is usually pretty broad and not much are in there because to get all these people to agree to it, it has to be pretty broad and vague, but it does reference some more specific agreements where, where stuff is more hard agreements are being made. And then after the COP is really, while well, this gets less attention, this is when when the implementation has to happen and also when these programs have to be funded that all these commitments have been made so often that is also another roadblock these programs are often underfunded and in general i would say um the cops have been historically disappointing i mean they've been happening for uh, over 25 years and of course climate the climate crisis seems to be worsening every day so that's a big thing it has been the disappointment and the feeling that not enough is happening but the meetings still happen and they're still are very important. It's not as if this is the only action that the world is taking on climate change, of course, and these outcomes aren't the be all end all, but they do have real consequences for the trajectory of how the world is addressing the climate crisis, of course, because this is really the biggest forum for government and civil society and scientists and industry to get together and talk about how they're going to to address the climate crisis. So, of course, much of the important work happens um, in domestic legislation, in activism, but this is really the big international conference where agreements are made and countries do try to make stronger commitments. Now I want to talk a little bit about what are the issues and goals of this year's COP, COP28. One big thing is a new climate finance fund to replace that $100 billion a year commitment that I mentioned that was from Copenhagen. Again, that was an agreement for developed countries to achieve $100, million, $100 billion a year uh, by 2020 to go to developing countries to deal with uh, climate mitigation, but of course that did not happen, so they're, they're making a new adjusted version of that. Another thing is structuring the loss and damage fund that I just mentioned that was created at last year's COP, so how is that going, going to be implemented? What's happening going forward with that? Another big deal is the first global stock take. Again, that stock take was created in Paris, and now it's this is the first year, 2023, where it's going to happen, checking in on progress and what still needs to be done, and that will happen every five years. And then again, like was at debate last year, the future, future of fossil fuels, is it going to be phased out? Is it going to be phased down? And that relates to really another thing I want to talk about, which is the big controversy around this year's COP, of course, the location. Um, Dubai, United Arab Emirates, the country is one of the world's top 10 oil producing countries, um, and they've been really big in arguing for phasing down rather than phasing out of fossil fuels, of course, because it's tied directly to their interests, and they're still, to this day, investing in fossil fuel expansion. So that was a big, big controversy being put there to, to make matters worse or to add on top of that. The president, this year's president of COP, um, 
Dr. or President Al-Jabbar is actually the president of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. So quite ironic for the head of a climate conference to also be the president of an oil company. That has drawn a lot of criticism about greenwashing, about what the role of COP is in legitimizing these countries that are producing a lot of oil. The other other side of the commentary is that um, we need to involve these countries in order to address the climate crisis because they are producing so much oil. Um, Another side is the human rights situation. Uh, There's been multiple points of human rights abuses in the United Arab Emirates and labor exploitation. There's kind of the two sides to to Dubai, this very wealthy new development side, and then the, the laborers often brought in from other countries who are making this development happen. Uh, Many, or a few organizations, I should say, have already boycotted COP and are not attending this year. And then, of course, it's also an authoritarian country, so freedom of speech is non-existent. Protests are very limited, like like it was in Egypt uh, last year. So we'll see how that all develops, but that's a really important context to know about the controversial nature of this year's COP. So now let's get into the meat of this podcast, no pun intended, Uh, the history and present day of negotiations around food and agriculture at COP. So overall throughout history, throughout the the history of COP, food and agriculture has not been a big topic. Uh, It's it's been gaining more attention recently, especially at least in the pavilions and the side events, if not the, the main negotiations. It was first really negotiated in 2009 when some major exporting countries like the United States and New Zealand were pushing for some mitigation agreements around agriculture that was mostly focused on tech solutions and agriculture intensification which are we can talk about later whether those are not are real solutions or not Um, and that was also the time around then when the term climate smart smart agriculture was coined uh, by the united nations food and agriculture organization or fao so we'll also talk a little bit more about climate smart agriculture because that is going to be a big term and a big topic at this year's cop and then in 2017 that was another moment for food and ag cop that was the Coronavia uh, Joint Work on Agriculture, which is going to be run under the UNFCCC, and that's a series of workshops around uh, agricultural adaptation and mitigation. At COP27, they basically agreed just to continue these workshops for four more years, so there hasn't been really any concrete action or um, declarations made out of that joint work group. And in general, mitigation has been pretty contentious. This is not just about agriculture, but there's often a feeling that um, industrialized countries have already done their emitting and now they've prospered from that, whereas uh, developing countries haven't had the chance to go through that industrialization process and emit. Um, So, for example, India was really against including mitigation in some of those agriculture conversations in recent years. Uh, And those countries often, or many developing countries who haven't uh, had that history of emitting feel they prefer a focus on resilience and adaptation as opposed to mitigation. And then last year, COP27, it was actually called, some people were calling it the food COP, uh, but not much actually happened. There was uh, a themed agriculture day as there is this year. Um, One thing in in one of the final agreements was somewhat controversial. The term food systems got replaced by food production systems. So people saw that as kind of a narrowing of what food systems really encompasses just down to some of the production aspects. There was a one positive thing was 130 countries joining a global methane pledge to to reduce emissions by 30% by 2030. 
I'll talk a little bit more about that later because methane is going to be a big topic. Um, for example, the US pro approach really focused on methane digesters, which is this new kind of emerging technology, which we'll also talk about more. Now I want to talk a little bit more about what's going on food and agriculture related at this year's COP. First, I think it would be helpful to talk about some really important statistics that have been coming out recently that relate to that are really showing how important food and agriculture are to the overall fight against climate change and why they really need to be a big part of the negotiations. The first statistic is that food systems, which is kind of including production, land use, inputs, transportation, etc., that whole combined food systems account for around a third of global emissions, which is probably um, more than people would know off the top of their heads. And with that number in mind, even if we were to hit all our other um, or countries were to hit all of our other 2030 climate pledges, the fossil fuel use just in our food system would actually blow by uh, the 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2037. So that really shows that to address the climate crisis, we have to address agriculture and food systems. Uh, along those lines, food systems are responsible for 15% of the fossil fuels burned, which is good to know, but also scary because that kind of shows you why some fossil fuel companies have an incentive to keep the current industrial food system we have going. But this year at COP, the UAE has really made food a priority, maybe partially because their climate is becoming more and more uh, inhospitable to food production. So they've made it a priority. The UAE are working with the US. There's this thing called Aim for Climate, uh, which is a US-UAE initiative developed in partnership with some of the big chemical seed and meat companies. So watch out for that, Aim for Climate. This year, there are 50 to 100 countries are expected to sign a declaration around food and climate. So we'll see see what that leads to. That's, that should be the, one of the biggest food and ag declarations that have been at, at any COP so far. Uh, another big thing to look out for is the UN FAO is going to be launching a 1.5 degree roadmap for food systems. So how can we actually stay below that number while changing the food and ag system? There's a big civil society group that has been calling for a food systems approach to be incorporated within the UN C. So food um, civil society is really pushing for a broader food systems approach to be included in some of these negotiations. And another thing to watch out for is just overall, this is maybe less related to production, but just the stability of the overall food system. We've really seen in the last couple of years with the COVID pandemic, with the war in Ukraine, that the global food system is quite volatile and lacks some resilience with driving up food prices. So that would be another thing to see if that's addressed, just the overall stability and volatility of the food system. And to close out the podcast a little bit uh, related to what I was just talking about, about what I'm interested, especially in following and observing at this year's COP. The first big thing would be nationally determined contributions or NDC. So that's what each country agrees to do on the domestic scale to combat climate change. So. Right now, food and agriculture strategies are missing from over 70% of these plan these national plans. So that's a big area for growth and where countries really should be taking more action to include food and agriculture in their, their national plans. Another big thing, which has been part of the debate um, over the past couple of years and is growing ever more is what strategy are we actually going to use to uh, address climate change within food and agriculture. So on the one hand, there's agroecology, which is more working within nature, um, using natural inputs, using crop rotations, using relationships between different things in the ecosystem to, to achieve more productive and resilient and less input dependent agriculture. That's the one hand uh, that has kind of been more pushed by civil society and smallholder farmers over the 
recent years and is finally starting to gain some more attention. For example, the FAO has recently acknowledged it as a strategy. And then versus kind of the more dominant narrative these days, which is called climate smart agriculture, which is has the goal of increasing production while also uh, decreasing emissions and increasing resilience. But it's a very vague term and many people see it as just a way to continue the current industrial food system with some slight improvements. Uh, that is also related a lot to agri-tech or these tech tech innovations to make agriculture either more productive or sustainable. So that's stuff like GMO products, um, precision agriculture using drones, etc., to target fertilizer and pesticide use. So that is kind of the big, a big debate. It's typically been more the mainstream or dominant narrative has been more that climate smart agriculture in recent years, but agroecology is gaining more and more um, attention. Another big thing which I mentioned earlier is what action will be taken on methane at COP. Methane is 80 times more potent than carbon, uh, than CO2, although it is more short-lived. So something we can address, we can and should address very, very soon and in the immediate term, but there's there is going to be, and there has been at recent COPs, a big presence from the meat industry, which prefer solutions like biogas digesters, which is more that climate smart agriculture that allows them to still produce the same amount of methane, but it's just being captured. Um, and another thing, which we'll see how much this gets talked about, and of course the, the meat companies would be against this, but reducing consumption of meat, because when we reduce consumption, of course, then that will downstream lead to the reduce, reduction of these methane emissions. Another big thing is just where funding for these climate agriculture related initiatives will go. A recent study was showing that smallholder farmers in the global south were benefiting from only 0.3% of all international climate finance, even though they're producing about a, a third of the world's food. And of course, with the number of farmers, they're a big part in addressing the climate crisis. So where is that funding going? Is that funding actually being equity, equitably distributed to the people who are really in need of it and, and have the potential to implement these strategies. And then the last thing would be, and as this has been a topic of discussion at, at recent COPs, is carbon offsets and what net zero means. So you may have seen many companies saying they're going to be net zero by 2050. And much of that is not coming from them reducing um, their emissions on their side, but just buying these carbon offsets. But Many of these carbon offsets have been seem to have been fraudulent. Do they actually reduce carbon? Are they just putting it off? Um, and then companies are allowed to claim net zero, even though it's really not a true solution. So we'll see, we'll see that's a little bit broader than agriculture, but we'll see what happens in relation to that. And that would be against the, the other term, which is called real zero, which is a true reduction, true uh, solution addressing the problem. So we'll see what happens with those things. Again, I'm, I'm focusing on um, national determined contributions, agroecology versus climate smart agriculture, methane action, where funding is going, and then these carbon offsets. And again, I'll provide some links uh, in the show notes about some of the resources I've been looking at to, to start to build this list of stuff that I'm interested in focusing on. And just quickly before I, I close out, um, sorry if this podcast was a little bit of me talking all the time. I This is not what it's going to be like. I wanted to tell you all a little bit about my goal for this podcast, which is I'm really hoping uh, I've been doing some emailing and checking some lists, but my goal is to do at least one podcast a day, which would just be a 10 or 15 minute interview with someone that I meet at COP, whether they're at a panel or they're at a NGO that I'm really interested in. So I'm really interested in hearing uh, 
broad range of people from different places around the world. My list is already really exciting. People from many different countries and continents working on different things. So we'll see how that goes. We'll see if I'm able to record uh, at the conference, whether it's <laughs> too loud, whether we can find a quiet room. Um, and yeah, if people are excited to talk to me. So that is the goal. We'll see how it goes. But thank you so much for listening. I promise this is the most talking I'll be doing on this podcast. I hope this was some beneficial information and I hope you're getting excited about this. I am I am really excited. This is a really big opportunity for much, much needed action, um, both to address climate change but and to recognize how this is impacting different people around the world and for countries that are disproportionately emitting to start to step up and recognize what they're doing now and what they've done historically so that the countries who have contributed almost nothing to this crisis are not suffering um, far more than others. So this will be a really interesting couple weeks in Dubai. Uh, I'll be there again for the first first half, um, and we'll see we'll see what happens. Uh, I hope to um, make some make some good episodes, learn from people, meet people from around the world, and see see how we can address this problem together and hear some about some of the people that are doing great work around the world to truly um, address climate change and make agriculture more sustainable. So thank you so much for listening. Sorry if this went a little long, but I hope I hope you learned something and I will hope you'll hopefully hear from me again in about two weeks from Dubai. So thank you for listening and I'll see you later.